I'm still not on. Okay, I'll try to project. Okay, this is good. Let me try this again. Good afternoon, beloved family in Christ and dear friends and visitors. And you say? Yeah, welcome to our second service this afternoon at our temporary home at the Chapel of the Holy Spirit. You know, a couple of weeks back, we started with the first in a series of messages that talk about the life of Moses. And today, we are continuing with the third message from the book of Exodus. Moses is a key figure in the Old Testament. He is considered the greatest of the prophets in the Old Testament. He rescues the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And he receives the law from God at Mount Sinai. But before we start with this look at Moses, let us pray for God to open our eyes to his word. Let us pray. Father God, make your book live to us. As we take in your word, show us yourself clearly, show us who we are really, and show us our deep need for our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. May you make your book live to us, change our hearts and renew us, so that we will increasingly grow to become more like Jesus Christ. For Jesus' namesake and for your glory. Amen. Coca-Cola, their market share has been steadily losing ground to Pepsi. And faced with shrinking sales for their flagship drink, Coca-Cola tried to improve the tried-and-true recipe for Coke. The company completely abandoned the recipe for Coke, launching a new Coke in the April of 1985. And I'm old enough to remember the launch of this. And guess what? The new Coke was a complete disaster. It was hated by Coca-Cola purists. It was criticized severely in the media. And the classic Coke returned to the shelves less than three months after it had been retired. The Coca-Cola company had good intentions to innovate and to increase sales, but these led to failure. And in today's scripture passage in Exodus chapter 2, verse 11 to 25, we also see how Moses had good intentions to rescue his own people by taking matters into his own hands, but how he too had failed. The reason was that Moses tried to rescue the Israelites in his own way, and that led to his failure. God himself will rescue the Israelites in God's own way. This tells us that God's work is to be done God's way. Doing God's work your way leads to failure. And we see in today's passage, Moses at age 40 and his failed attempts at rescuing the people of God. However, before we jump to Moses at age 40, what has happened so far? We see in chapter 1 how God fulfills his promise to Abraham by multiplying his descendants into a great nation. They were, however, in Egypt. They were not in the land promised to them, but they were slaves in the land of Egypt. There arose a new pharaoh, a great king over Egypt. And this king did not know Joseph, the ancestor of Moses who had served Egypt greatly. This new king harshly oppressed the people of Israel. In fact, he carried out genocide against the Israelites. 
having each and every Israelite born, son born, cast into the river Nile and drowned. And we see here a cosmic conflict that started in Genesis 3, where the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent continue to fight. The offspring of the woman, represented here by the nation of Israel, the promised people of God, was in deadly battle with the offspring of the serpent, represented here by Pharaoh and Egypt, who sought to eradicate the Israelites. And Pharaoh, by his actions, he opposed God and God's creation mandate for his people to be fruitful and multiply. And in doing so, Moses set himself up to oppose the spread of God's glory throughout the whole earth. Pharaoh worked against God's promises to the nation of Israel through Abraham. He worked against the promise of a great nation, land and blessing. Pharaoh set himself in opposition to God. And this is what we saw in the first two chapters. However, in cha- at the start of chapter 2, we see God working to fulfill his plans. Moses was born and was saved by playing place in a basket and placed on a river. There he was saved and adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. And by a turn of events controlled by God, Moses was nursed rescued, nursed, and raised by his own birth mother. Therefore, as Hebrews 11 tells us, while Moses grew up with all the privileges of being part of the royalty of Egypt, he had the best education and training in Egypt, but Moses grew up knowing his heritage as an Israelite. And he has also this growing sense that he was supposed to do something. He was supposed to deliver the Israelites out of slavery from Egypt. In the recent general election, there was a joke going around by one of my friends that urged me to vote rightly. And when I asked him what does it mean for me to vote rightly, the person said that he was not persuading me to pick any particular political party, but rather remember to put a cross in the box next to the candidate that I choose to vote for. And can you imagine that in me, if I'm instead of following the instructions to put a cross, I put a tick. Or maybe I'm just being naughty and cheeky, you know, some of you know that I can be, and I put a smiley in the box instead, okay, next to the candidate. And even though the outcome for what I wanted is to vote for a particular candidate, but if I have done it my way, instead of following instructions, I would have spoiled my vote it would have been invalid. Although I want the same outcome as the election department, for, uh, what he, they want for all voters, that is to properly cast a vote. But if I had done it my way, it would have changed the outcome. And this, is, my friends, is what we see in Exodus 2, verse 11 to 14. Moses tried to rescue the Israelites his way rather than God's way. And this portion of scripture warns us against doing God's work our way. And as you work, as we work our way through the passage today, please keep your finger on Acts chapter 7, verse 23 to 29 as well in the New Testament. This is where in Acts 7 it gives a commentary on this very portion of scripture in the Old Testament. So listen with me as I read Exodus chapter 2, 
Verse 11. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to be with his people and look on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. We encounter Moses here, and at this point, he is 40 years old. And he is moved to visit his people, the Israelites. We see this in verse 11, as well as Acts 7.23. We see that Moses grows up with a sense of his identity as an Israelite. In verse 11, we see he went out to his people. He goes to visit his brothers in Acts 7.23. And again, he identifies with the Israelite slave being beaten in verse 12 as one of his people. It's likely that his birth mother who cared for him must have told him of his identity and his heritage as an Israelite. Moses identified himself with his people rather than with the Egyptians, and he visits them. And when he visits them, what does he see? He sees an Egyptian slave master beating up on one of his people. Verse 11. Moses, making sure that no one was observing, he goes to avenge the oppressed men by striking down and murdering the Egyptian and hiding him in the sand. We see this in verse 12 and Acts 7, 24. Moses, in his mind, he thinks to right a wrong and in doing so, secure a rescue of his fellow Israelites. And he thinks that his actions will be understood by his Israelite brothers. Moses supposed that he was doing God's work, the work of rescuing the Israelites by his own hand. But we see in Acts 7.25, but the Israelites did not understand. And when Moses goes out the next days, he sees two Israelites quarreling and struggling with each other. He intervenes and tries to mediate and to bring reconciliation. Verse 13 and Acts 7.26. However, despite Moses' best intentions and efforts, it does not go as he plans. You can almost imagine the aggressor pushing Moses aside and then uh, aggressively retorting to Moses, who made you prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? The man rejects Moses' intervention. He rejects Moses' authority. And he reveals Moses as a murderer. The thing is, my friends, we know on reading the whole book of Exodus that God will indeed call Moses, call Moses to be ruler and judge. We see Moses commissioning in, uh, in Exodus chapter 3. God actually will call him to be ruler and judge over Israel and to deliver them out of slavery in Egypt. And also we know that there's some indication that Moses, while growing up, has a sense of his destiny in rescuing his own people. We see his Acts 7.25. However, 
Moses, by taking the rescue of his people into his own hands, he commits murder and is rejected by the very people he seeks to save. Moses took matters into his own hands and he sought to do God's work his own way. And it leads to failure and rejection. And though this pattern of the people of Israel rejecting Moses repeats itself in Moses' life, after Moses was called and commissioned by God in Exodus 3, he does God's work God's way, or at least most of the time. And as a result, God was with him, and the Israelites follow Moses. We hear a popular quote, the ends justify the means. And what we see here is that in God's methodology, the ends does not justify the means. God's work is to be done God's way. We are not to do God's work our way. Are you doing God's work God's way? Is there an area of your life, your work, your studies, your relationship, or even church ministry that you're doing on your own way? Is there an area that you've thought that the ends justify the means? That the outcome matters no matter what you do to get there? We see that even good outcomes need to be achieved in God's way. However, in case we think that uh, we are better than Moses and we beat up on Moses, we need to recognize that we are no better than Moses. We have time and again take matters into our own hands and have sinned. What then is the solution for us? We continue with Moses facing the results of his failed attempt at rescuing his people his own way. Moses flees to Midian. We read in Exodus 2.15, When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priests of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father rule, he said, How is it that you have come home so early, so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds, and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he might, may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zephora. She gave birth to a son, and he, meaning Moses, called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. In diplomacy, the term personal non grata literally means an unwelcome person. It refers to a foreign person who's entering or remaining in a particular country is prohibited by the country's government. And that's what happens to Moses. When Pharaoh hears of Moses' action, 
and the murder of an Egyptian slave master. He seeks to kill Moses. Moses, in effect, becomes a personnel non grata. And at that, Moses flees into self-exile in Midian, a desert region in Arabia. Verse 15 and Acts 7, 29. There Moses comes across the daughter of Ruel, a priest of Midian, watering their flocks in verse 16. And we see this woman were harassed by shepherds. And these shepherds were quite wise. They likely waited till the daughters dropped water from the well to chase them away so that they could actually use the water to water their own flocks. But we see here Moses standing up for them like what he did for the uh, Israelite slave. And just as he did that, but you see something different here. But rather than killing the shepherd, Moses chased them away instead. Then Moses stooped to serve by watering the daughter's flock. Could we see here Moses perhaps learning some lessons in restraint and learning what it means to do things God's way? Then the daughters went home and reported to the father what had happened. And perhaps the father, sensing that he may have a potential suitor for his daughters, invites Moses to his house. So maybe we have a pattern here for fathers. Perhaps this is one way you can discern a potential suitor for your daughter, that he waters your flock. And Moses lives in rural household and was given the hand of Ruel's daughter, Zephorah, in marriage. Verse 21. And in time, Moses had a family and became the father of two sons. But Moses did not forget that he was an exile, displaced from his own land. And he called his firstborn son Gershom, meaning sojourner. For Moses remembers that he is an exile in a foreign land. We see here in the account, Moses faces the consequences of doing God's work in his own way. He is now a foreigner, an exile from his home, living in the midst of a foreign land. He must felt like such a failure. He thinks that he's supposed to rescue his people, but by taking matters into his own hands, he is exiled and apparently sidelined. It seems to him that God had bypassed him. God had bypassed him in God's plans. However, my friends, even in the midst of failure, there is yet grace. If you're careful enough, you see the glimpses of grace in the text. God provides a home for a murderer and a family for Moses. Moses suffers exile and through this exile, he grows to identify with his people, the Israelites, who are also exiled from God's promised land. And for the next 40 years, Moses lives as a shepherd in exile in the desert, and he's shaped to maturity. God is using Moses' failure to change him and to prepare him for God's great plan of delivering the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. Though Moses faces the result and failure of doing God's work his way, instead of God's way, God is still gracious 
and is not done with Moses. You know, I remember attending a conference in which Pastor Edmund Chan of Covenant EFC was speaking. And before the growth and impact of his church and the ministries that God has given to him, he spent about 15 years in obscurity. In his own words, he was struggling and serving in a small church. And if you know Edmund Chan, he's a dynamic man. He's, a, uh, he's someone that's really driven. He has the motivation and drive to make things happen, especially things for God. And the apparent lack of results and growth by his own mission deeply frustrated him. He shared how once he struggled in prayer before God. And the answer he got from God was that God wanted him to spend this time in obscurity so that he would be shaped and prepared for the work that God was preparing for him. How about you? How do you respond? How would you respond to the results you are facing now because you took matters into your own hands? Do you trust that God is still gracious? Do you confess your mistakes and sins and trust in God's abundant grace that He will forgive, that He may still use you? We have all time and again taken matters into our own hands and have sinned and we have faced the results for it. But God is gracious. You know, being a single, I don't have my own children, but you know, I interact with uh, my peers who have children, and I've been told by them that parents are able to hear the cry of their child, even in the midst of other cries and distractions. So if you have a father sitting at the side of a playground, he would instantly be able to pick up and hear his son or daughter calling for him in the midst of other children's voices and calls. Is this true, fathers? Yes? I mean, I heard this. I suppose it's true. Okay? He is able to hear the call for him because his child is his child. And this is what we see in the final three verses of chapter 2. The people of Israel cries out for help and God their God hears and remembers and acts. Exodus 2, verse 23. If you have been sleeping, taking an afternoon nap, uh, the first half of this sermon, wake up and listen to this because this is the best part of the sermon. Okay? During, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. We see here God appears at the end of the first two chapters where till now He has been working behind the scenes. We see God initiating and doing his work of rescue his way. We are told that in the time Moses was in the desert for some 40 years, Pharaoh dies. So there's a new Pharaoh in place. And for instance, the people of Israel might have let themselves feel some relief. Maybe their time of harsh slavery has come to an end. However, they were still kept as slaves. 
and harshly oppressed. And Israel groaned because of slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Verse 23. And we see here the Bible uses three different words to describe the desperate prayers of God's people. Together they express intense grief, bitter distress, and painful agony. Their sufferings were so great that it was all they could do to cry out to God. And we see in verse 24-25, God sees, God hears, God remembers. God sees the suffering of His people. God hears their cries and groanings. God remembers His covenant that He made with His people. The covenant He made with through Abraham in Genesis 12 as well as Genesis 17, which was read earlier. God remembers His promises made and He acts to deliver His people. And we see from Exodus 3 onwards, God initiating His plan with the call and commissioning of Moses. And then in subsequent chapters, God's action in rescuing his people out of slavery in Egypt in his own way. And we see Moses subsequently, he does God's work God's way for the most part. And the story ends with God knew. The word in Hebrew knew here is also used in Genesis 4.1 where it says, Adam knew Eve. And in that context, there is a sense of sexual intimacy that is uh, indicated there. So what this word says here is not a mere recognizing of the facts of the Israelite suffering. God knows it in a deep and personal way. As commentator Philip Graham Riken so well said, what the scripture says is that God knew his people. He knew all about them. The word suggests an intimate personal acquaintance with all the particulars of their suffering. The God of the covenant, the God who sees, hears and remembers is the God who knows our situation in all its desperate need. God knows the situation of His people in all their desperate needs. God knows your situation in all your desperate need. And He will see, hear, and act to deliver you. Are you in desperate need right now? Do you despair and give up hope on any rescue? Cry out to God and He will save. We have all time and again taking matters, taken matters into our own hands and have sinned and have faced the results for it. But God is gracious. If you cry out to Him in faith, God will act to rescue you. Doing God's work God's way is by faith and is neither by your own effort nor by taking matters into your own hands. So what? What now? How are we to respond in faith and do God's work God's way? My friends, I leave you with two questions. I leave you with two questions to consider. The first question, have you been trying to save yourself by your own effort rather than trusting and resting in God's grace to rescue you? Let me repeat. Have you been trying to save yourself by your own efforts 
rather than trusting and resting in God's grace to you to rescue you. For our non-Christian friends with us this morning, have you been striving to obtain salvation from God and rescue from your sins by your own efforts? In your heart, you feel guilt for your sins and selfishness. And you try by heart, by working to be a good person. But by doing so, it's almost like using a soup spoon to fill a water, to fill water into a leaky bucket. You know what happens when you use a soup spoon to scoop water into a leaky bucket? You will not succeed. The water just flows out. God's way to salvation is to trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross on your behalf, that your sins are forgiven. That your sins are forgiven. And because of that, you are in a right relationship with God. And I plead with you to turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. And if this is your desire, you can talk to any of the elders and pastors after this service. For the Christians in our midst struggling with sin and failure, Maybe you are wrecked with guilt. You feel that you are a failure and cannot change anything. I mean, let's be honest. There are times even every one of us feels that we are a failure, that we can't change anything. You are struggling with giving up. God's way is to see and know God's abundant grace available to you again and again in the gospel. Know that even though you are a failure and you mess up time and again, Just like God is gracious to Moses, He will be gracious to you. God will use your suffering to shape you for His plans and grow you to be more Christ-like if you respond in trust. Maybe for others, you take the the route of putting even more effort to compensate and overcome for your sins and failures. Instead of doing things God's way, you take matters into your own hands. You work even harder to try to cover up for your own sins. God's way is for you to go before God in prayer and confession. Admit to your sins and failures. Ask God to forgive and trust that God is working out things, working out things in you according to His own way, into His own plan. The second question I have for us is, have you been doing God's work in ministries in the church God's way? Doing God's work, the ends and outcomes, as well as the means and approaches matter. In physics, I mean the physicists among us can correct me if I'm wrong, there's a theory called path dependence. What it essentially says is that the state of the system depends on the path taken in order to achieve it. What this means is, the approaches and means taken will impact the outcome and ends. So let's say I want to build a loving, connected community in our CG ministry. And however, if I go about this in an approach that is unloving and selfish, then despite how much effort I put in, the end outcome of a loving, connected community a loving, connected community would not be achieved. 
even if there's some semblance of the desired outcome, it would be undermined by the means and approaches I've used to get there. This is because I've gone about it with the wrong approach and means. God's work has to be accomplished God's way. And God has really revealed His ways in the Bible. As a church, let us align our means and approaches as well as ends and outcomes to what God has revealed in His Word. This means avoiding the pragmatism and materialism that marks much of the church ministries here in Singapore and returning to doing church as the Bible tells us to. Let us then as church focus both on the right approaches and outcomes of church ministry so that we will do God's work, God's way to achieve God's outcomes for His glory. I put up two related prayer points for you to pray for after the benediction. And as part of the application, we are to pray that the Holy Spirit will apply these truths into our hearts. And we are to pray for each other and God's will and work to be done. So after the benediction, I appeal to you, do not rush out immediately out of the worship hall, but take about five minutes to pray over the two questions with a friend. Lastly, we have all time and again taken matters into our own hands and have sinned and faced the results for it. But God is gracious. If you cry out to Him in faith, God will act to rescue you. In the New Testament, in a small little book called Jude, in Jude verse 5, the author writes that Jesus saved a people out of the land of Egypt. I mean, isn't it Moses that saved? Why does the author uh, in Jude say Jesus saved a people out of the land of Egypt? What this means is that God hears, remembers, sees, and knows us. And He ultimately sends His Son, Jesus Christ, to accomplish our rescue. A rescue not out of slavery from Egypt, but out of slavery to sin. Moses served as a type of Christ or as a signpost that points to the person and work of Jesus. Jesus Christ, the greater Moses, who perfectly does God's work, God's way, comes down from his heavenly throne and becomes a man. And as a man, Jesus hears, sees, and knows us. He experiences suffering and pain, suffering on the cross on our behalf so that the plan of God might be accomplished. The rescue of a people for Himself. God remembers His promises made to His people and fulfills His promises in Jesus Christ. My friends, what this means is this. What this means is that even though we have sinned, even though we have time and again taken matters into our own hands and have sinned, and we have faced the result for it, but God is gracious. If you cry out to Him in faith, God will act to rescue you. And He has really done it for us in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father God, we cry out to You. You are gracious. You hear and know us. You act to rescue us and deliver us from our distress and trouble. You have really sent your divine rescuer, Jesus Christ, and he has accomplished your plan, your way. 
May we as individuals and as a church do your work, your way to achieve your outcomes for your glory. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ who suffers on the cross for our sake. Amen.